I'm about as excited. I could start running. Man, I, whew. You, you ever see the Pentecostals when they, they, they <laughs> come on, I'm, I'm about ready to get excited here. Wow. That was awesome worship. Good, good time, man. I just, it started this morning. It just, the prayer room broke out and it was just like, whew. If you get here early to church, come join us at 930. Join the prayer room. I like it to be standing room only in that place. It's like, it just comes together. You know, he said if two or three of you would come in my name, right? Two or three might come in something else. But when you come in his name, he said he'd be there. And he knows what we need. Amen. Even if we don't know what we need or we think we know what we need. Amen. Whew, glory to God. Um, I really want to invite you to come. Uh, Kingdom men, if you've never been to Kingdom Men, it's, we meet on 7 o'clock on Monday nights. But if you've been one time or no times, come tomorrow night. We're going to do practice. We're going to uh, actually, our Kingdom Men got volunteered to do Resurrection Sunday worship. And they've been practicing. I know our worship leader's like, oh, no, oh, my. Oh, it's going to be fine. We have the Kingdom Men Choir, so we need some men's voices. Come on, we can, we're, we can lift this up. I want to welcome our live streaming audience from wherever you are. I get calls during the week and some emails. Welcome to you all. I pray God goes right through the airways and touches you right where you are. In Jesus' name. Well, Lord, we ask you to come this morning. Open us up to the word of truth, full of living power. I thank you that you're already here. And we just came to honor your name. We thank you. We privileged to be with you this morning. King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who's coming back again. Hallelujah. Amen. Well, you can pull out your outlines. I, uh, I've titled this message this morning, The Tombs of Triumph. And it's plural, The Tombs of Triumph. Have you ever had a situation in your life where it looks like a tomb and it's a mess? It looks like, man, it looks, it, it looks bad. In fact, you'll see when we talk about Lazarus, the tomb stinks when it's filled with death. But when the King of kings and the Lord of lords says, come on out, something happens. It doesn't stink anymore. <laughs> and it becomes a triumphant place. And so I have been really moved. There's, there's actually, if you study John's gospel, you'll look at the, the accounts there. And, and actually in John 10 and 11, 12, we, we already saw this morning from our children's ministry leaders that... When you look at what happened in the tomb of Lazarus, it's so set up what was about to happen to Jesus. His timing is so perfect. And you're going to see the correlation. I don't know if you recognize how close the days are between the time Lazarus is raised from the dead and the Passover celebration and God's timing. He brings all of the mourners to Judea, which is about 1.7 miles outside of where Jesus is going to enter in Jerusalem. And in fact, it's the place where the lepers and the poor were. They weren't allowed to be inside. In fact, the law said they had to be outside the city gates. And if you sit up over Jerusalem, you, look, you can't really see where Lazarus' house was, the accounts will tell you. But it's the place where the lepers were. Simon the leper's house was there. And you're going to find out that this is the place. Jesus just loves to show up where the poor and the broken are. I mean, he's born in a manger. Hello? And so... This is this place where the tombs of triumph, I want to kind of set some things in motion here because I want us to take apart the scripture. Actually, keep your outline for next week or we'll have another copy. We're going to take two weeks in this and unpack it. So this is both the Resurrection Sunday and the Palm Sunday 
we'll see how far we get on this. Let me ask you a question first. Is your faith alive or is it dead? It's alive. Well, some of you, at least half of you said it's alive. It's alive. Scripture said, James does this. James, half, uh, Jesus' half-brother, says in, in, in the book of James, he says, faith without works is dead. So you said your faith is alive. Prove it. Prove it to me. Okay, so let's, uh, let's just go with me for a minute. If your faith is alive, let's say that we find 12 others, a jury of peers, who have already been determined that their faith is alive, and you're going to take the next 10, 15 minutes over the next few weeks to come and present to this jury whether your faith is alive. Now, I would suggest, or it would be required by the court of your peers, one, bring some witnesses from your house that you live with. Also, would like you to bring some witnesses from your workplace, um, some of those that you might be in your neighborhood with. They will be a character witness to your faith. What I, I'd also like you to bring your financial statements, right? And also your Time Warner Spectrum account. I'd like you to bring that. Um, and we're going to present so that when it says, my faith is alive. Guess what? There'll be a day when Jesus is going to pull it all up. And I want you to see, it was okay for Jesus. In fact, he goes to the Pharisees and he says, if you don't want to believe who I say I am, let at least my works prove who I am. So let's take and unpack this as we look at the tension. This is really it. The tension between faith and required evidence. We got any Detective Columbos in the house? Just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Right? Don't give me all your supposition, all what you say. No, the facts. Let me see the facts, right? And so Jesus, in fact, he describes this. How many witnesses does it actually take in a court? And it says two or three. If you look at, you know, just write this down. You don't look at it now. 2 Corinthians 13, 1 says every matter, every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. It's established. He also says that in Deuteronomy. It's the required evidence. Well, how many eyewitnesses? <laughs> when we look at what, uh, what Jesus, at the end, Paul tells us in Corinthians about the resurrection. In fact, it's in Charisma Magazine this month. If it wasn't a resurrection, our faith is just, we just might as well go fishing, right? Because without the resurrection, you're a miserable people. There's no hope. Paul deals with this in Corinthians. I, love, I even share this with, at funerals. I said, he is the resurrection. He's the hope. If he didn't die and wasn't resurrected, then what are we doing? And so this evidence of the eyewitness, it says, you'll notice when he appears to them at the tomb or he comes through the wall and appears to the disciples. And at one point, Paul even says, there were 500 eyewitnesses at one time. And at that time when Paul was sharing it, many of them are still living. If you've been an eyewitness account to a miracle, you've seen something happen, you cannot be talked out of that miracle. I've shared it. You know, I used to belong to a denomination that didn't believe in gifts and didn't believe in healing. 
And, uh, and I don't fault them for that. Just, they haven't had that revelation yet. In fact, we just heard they're getting there. And so when, when the cessationists said, well, when the apostles died, all the gifts died, that, that's not for today. We have the word. That's enough. Well, the word is good. But he also said the gifts would prove, would validate. He says many times in the New Testament, the signs and wonders validate that the message we preach is true. Right? So the signs following, Mount Mark 16, these will be the signs of them that believe. Cast out demons in my name. Lay hands on the sick. Handle deadly things without harm. Those are the proofs of those evidence of. In fact, you remember when Jesus, there were two witnesses unto John the Baptist. Remember a few weeks ago I preached this. He said, when Jesus came, just as we were getting ready to baptize 21 that got baptized that Sunday, right? It was an awesome Sunday. I shared in that testimony of that work up to that. It says, John knew, based on the testimony of his mama, right, Elizabeth, he was six months in utero, John the Baptist, when Mary shows up in the house and the baby does a flip in the womb and she starts prophesying, right? And that moment's like, whew. So I'm sure he heard his testimony. Yeah, your daddy Zachariah, he couldn't even talk. It was nine months he couldn't until you were born, son. And then we named you John. I'm sure he heard those stories. And he knew the prophetic words. He says, when I baptize the one who's coming after me, then I'm not even worthy to undo his lashes of his sandal. When I see the Holy Spirit land on him, I'll know that's the one. Well, guess what? That happens. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes in the name of the Lord. That was eyewitness number one. Well, now go 30 some odd years later from the time of his birth and that prophecy his mom told him to the point now that after Jesus is baptized, John is now in prison for speaking against Herod. And he sends two of his disciples. He goes, go make sure he's the one. What does he say to him? <laughs> Go back and you tell John, the blind see, the lame walk, the dead hear, and the dead are raised from Christ. The deaf hear, the dead are raised from, from the dead. Go tell him and tell him also, don't turn away from me. <laughs> Two eyewitness accounts, because if you're about to lose your head for the kingdom, it'd be good to know that's the king that you're doing it for, right? Hello. And so at least those eyewitness accounts, and we see here in these eyewitness accounts, there's two tombs that declare the righteousness of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords who's coming. So let's, uh, let's open to James 2. I'd love to hear those pages turning. iPhone's coming on. I know, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm, I'm learning, but... James chapter 2, and let's begin in verse 14. Now, James, he's one of those realist kind of guys. You know, I don't know if you're a left brainer, right brainer, or hopefully you're a brainer. <laughs> no, we don't allow no brainers. But anyway, so I believe James is one of those guys like me. At, at one point, he cri he's critical of his brother, right? Even, even makes fun of him. You ought to go to the festival and let your disciples see all your miracles, right? Well, later, this James is the one who also says, let me be a realist. And he starts with this whole faith walk. And in James 2, he shares, faith without good deeds is dead. Verse 14, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say that you have faith 
but you don't show me by your actions. You don't show by your actions. Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, have a great day, stay warm, eat well, but then you don't give that person food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Whew, stop and tell me about that tension. I thought it was by grace. Ephesians 5, 8, 9, by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, lest anyone would boast. But if you're going to sit here and prove that your faith is alive, there better be some evidence. Amen? That's what James is saying. He says, see, faith by itself, it's one thing by grace you come in, and it is all by grace. It's by the blood and the, and the power and the authority of faith. It says, by faith, Abraham, right, came in and received the kingdom. And now we're heirs and joint heirs, Paul tells us in Galatians. And we're at that place where we've come in by faith. But now you are justified by the works. It validates who we are and who we say we are. So you see, verse 17, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it's dead and useless. Now, someone may argue some people have faith. Others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. Well, you say you have faith. For you believe that there is only one God, there is one God. Well, good for you. Even the demons believe this. <laughs> Hello. Yipes. And they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember your ancestor Abraham, shown to be right by God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith was complete. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God, God continued and called him in righteous and faith, and God continued to call him the friend. So you see, we're shown to be right with God by what we do and not by faith alone. This, this, this scripture always intrigued me. Rahab, you know, she's the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. She, ha- she ran a house of ill repute in Jericho. Hello? By her faithful act to hide the two spies that came in, he counts it here. And James says in verse 25, Rahab, the prostitute, is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she did those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so is faith dead without good works. So we see here, there's this tension between my faith by grace being made right with God, and once you're in, the door, the door is pretty narrow getting into this place. Only one way to the kingdom, one way. Without the Son, there is no life. Without Him, you don't have the Father. Without Him, you don't have life at all. The door is really, really narrow. And since many are called, but few are ever chosen. And He says, come, come, come. But once you get through the door, it is wide open. Ministry everywhere. Finding our place. That's why, what would happen? I'm excited about the Wednesday teaching. I'd encourage you to come. What would happen? What would happen in this city if there was a church that was fully led by the Spirit of God? Every one of you and me were led by the Spirit of God. 
serious. I'm not, I'm not making some wild state. What would really happen? I, I'm serious. I'm ser- what would really happen out there? When we would let, we were told by the little, that's the one. Go talk to him. Not that you pray for everybody. We know Jesus did not pray for everyone. The man at Bethesda, the man at Gate Beautiful, he, he walked by. He did not pray for everyone. But when the Holy Spirit, when the Father said, that's the one, son, he went in all in. I'm laying it all down, laying it all down. I'm laying, man, I, what would happen? I, come on. If we could just turn off social media and get in a place where we would come and say, how do I hear the voice of God? How do I personally hear the voice of God? Because he, ma- he manifests all different ways. There's some people that get it, pictures, visions. Man, I just, I've been reading Blake Healy's book, and it's like, woohoo, glory to God. Pat put me on, you got to read this chapter in the back. And I'm like, man, I don't see that way, but man, I like what he does. Others, you get impressions, you get visions, you get dreams, you get words, you get pictures. Cultivate how God, he says, my sheep hear my voice. And if you're a sheep, there's no goats alive. We just had five baby goats born. Was it two days ago? Three days ago? Triplets and twins. My goodness, it's a fruitful place out there. I was out there in Burgoyne yesterday, tiptoeing through all that stuff. And wow, those goats are beautiful out there. We got eight pigs. They came in. I'm, I'm telling you what, it's like, good, look, no goats allowed. And those pigs, man, they're just... They're just plumb dirty. And those goats, they got a mind of their own. We need some sheep in the house. Come on. So let's, let's turn. Turn with me to, to John 10. John 10. This is where Jesus starts to call out the religious leaders. And he says, okay, I'll tell you who I am. They want to know who you are. And they're seeing all the miracles occur. They're seeing it over and over. The reports are coming in. And so, let's pick up in John 10, in verse 22. It was now winter, and Jesus was in Jerusalem at the time of Hanukkah, the festival of dedication. He was in the temple, and he was walking through the section known as Solomon's Colonnade. The people surrounded him, and they asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? See, they knew, based on John the Baptist, and the four, that there was a... They were looking for Messiah. They were looking for him. There was an understanding. Just like we say, we believe it's right around the corner. You cannot look at the world today and say, man, the second coming is right around the corner. The fulfillment of all of the promises Jesus said would be there as signs, they are all over the place. And so just like we're anticipating the second coming and the rapture of the church, they were anticipating the first coming of the Messiah. And they knew what the signs would be based on the scrolls. And so, Jesus, they're saying, are you the one? Are you the one? Are you the one? Even John, right there, had gone out and baptized in the Jordan. He says, the one that comes in the name of the Lord. And so, we see, Jesus walks in. He says, are you the Messiah? They ask him, are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. Verse 25, John 10, 25, he says, Jesus replied, I have already told you. And you don't believe me. You don't believe me because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. That's good. 
I know them. <laughs> and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me, for my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one, no one can snatch them from the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. Does that sound like John 17? The Father and I are one. Once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. Once again, this is like every time he tells them the truth, they want to stone him. Jesus said, at my Father's direction, I've done many good works for which you are going to stone me. Drop down, it says, verse 37, it says, don't believe me unless I carry out my Father's work. But if I do His work, believe me as evidence of the miraculous works that I've done. Even if you don't believe me, then you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Once again, they tried to arrest Him, but He got away from them and left. He went beyond the Jordan River near the place where John was first baptizing, and he stayed there a while. Miraculous signs... They marked to one another, they remarked, everything he said about this man has come true. And many were there and believed in Jesus. See, here's the, here's the situation. Signs force a decision. You know, we've been in, we've been in places and we've seen, I mean, I was this left-brainer dude, right? If I didn't see it, smell it, taste it, measure it, it didn't happen. And then I'm over here and blind eyes go white in front of me. <laughs> Tumor falls out on the ground, ugly, messy. My wife will tell me it was there. We had a vineyard pastor, 300 pounds, and, and he was like, don't step in that thing. Said, what is that? He goes, it fell out of that woman. You can't see a sign like that and then have the woman come and testify that when this man prayed for me, it fell out. My, the tumor left me. You can't, you can't unsee it. Right? It's a testimony of the truth. It'll force a decision. But they saw, these ones who had their eyes blinded, they saw the miracle, and they still didn't believe. You might say, what's wrong with them? Hello? I've gone with people to the nations, and I've seen them lay hands on people, and then I've seen them get offended and start with a little leaven of offense and bitterness, and they're now not in any church anywhere and have denied their faith and have been divorced and broken. We are a people that, if we don't stay tied into Him, guess what? It just takes a little bit of leaven to start you down a path of confusion. The devil will capitalize on it. So signs are good, and they validate. It'll also be the testimony on that day when you stand before him, and he says, so tell me why I should let you into the kingdom. What you believe about Jesus and what you did with what you believed will be the testimony. And then he'll call up the screen of every idle word and everything that was done, and praise God, no guilt and shame because there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ because I'm in the Father as he is in him, and he were in him, and we're all together in him. Right? John 17. When you're in Jesus, at that moment, when Jesus sees you, he says, this one's mine, and he's marked. And even if, the, even if the accuser says, but what about this, and what about this, and what about this? 
Not guilty, not guilty, blood paid, blood paid, blood paid, confessed, right? 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins to him, he's faithful to forgive you from all unrighteousness. That's the gospel. So on that day when you stand before him, give an account, it's going to be, it's all about Jesus. It's him. So the signs are validation, and they will draw you in. They'll force a decision, but they may not be enough for those who walk away. It wasn't enough for them. Jesus said, I'm telling you who I am. You're not my sheep, but at least if you don't want to believe that, at least look at what I do and believe that the Father sent me. He goes on, he says, here's what I'd like to do. I would like to show a short video clip. I'll ask the guys if you could pull up. If you've never seen the movie John's Gospel, it's a good time to watch it. (laughs) There's a, I've kind of pulled this excerpt together. I would like you to get in the moment of what happened with Lazarus. So before we start it, here's the picture. Lazarus, sisters, Martha and Mary, they now live, they live 1.7 miles outside in Judea from Jerusalem. There's an interesting debate, we'll probably get into it next week. Is the sinful woman who cracks the alabaster, did that happen twice or once? Was it when he was at Simon the leper's house, and that happens. Remember, she cracks the ball and, and, wash, and pours it over his head and then washes his feet with his hair. We know that Martha and Mary Magdalene, they appear, Martha, that seems to be similar family and accounts. The, the case of whether Mary Magdalene, Mary the sister of Lazarus, and, and the, the sinful woman, are they all the same one person? And the commentators are sw- they're, they're all over the place on this one. Most believe they are the same. And we're going to look at it. Now, the, the, if I were to give you a testimony, let, let's, let me give you this example. If, um, when we were in Tanzania, we saw a miracle. So Pastor Mike was there, Pastor Willie was there, and many others. <laughs> I think we had 30 or 40 there. If we were to give an account of a, of a miracle, Pastor Mike might emphasize one thing. Pastor Willie might emphasize another. Pastor Tom might emphasize another. In the accounts of that, you can see different emphasis and different purposes. So we, we can look at these. I want you to see that because it really matters. But as we pull this up, get the picture. What they believed about Jesus, Martha and Mary, they loved Jesus. Jesus loved them, loved Lazarus. And you know the account. They, he, they send word in advance because they knew what Jesus was capable of. They'd seen his miracles. And they said, send to the master. Tell him the one he loves, Lazarus, is sick. And you know the story. Jesus purposefully waits days for him to die. But I want you to see the people believed it was conditional. He could only be healed if Jesus would show up while he's alive. You'll see this twice. It says... Master, if you had been here, if you had only been here. I want to ask you, how many times do you do the if onlys? He can only do it this way because I have this expectation. He's done it that way. So if the onlys. He is capable of all things. (laughs) All things are possible to those who believe. So he challenges that. And he sets up, look at the timing of this. He sets up the timing that, first of all, Lazarus dies it's 1.7 miles outside of Jerusalem. The Passover's coming in a few days. All the mourners come to be with 
Mary and Martha, so they have the funeral. They've already had the funeral, and they're doing their seven-day time of, fa- of uh, mourning. So they're all dressed, and then Jesus comes. And the mourners are all, all the eyewitnesses, a lot more than two or three. All the eyewitnesses are 1.7 miles outside the tomb that he stinketh. And they're the ones that go back into Jerusalem because six days later, he's going to be the one riding on a donkey colt. And all of them have come from all over the country because they're required to be there by the law for Passover. Do you see God's timing? Come on. Timing, sometimes with Lord, I don't like this timing. I don't even understand it. So let's... Let's look, get in the moment. I'd like you to, if your brother had just died and the one that you expected could heal him, that you sent, where are you, Jesus? Where are you, Jesus? Why didn't you come? We see that Martha, the one who does all the work, she's the one who runs out to him. Mary, who was the one who always sat at his feet, I believe she knew he was coming. She didn't come. In fact, he had to summon her. She was the one that was so intimate with him and would sit at his feet. But the wound of that loss and the not God showing up the way I thought he should show up really affects them. I want you to see also in the scripture, my wife and I debated this one. Some of the translation, when Jesus sees this and he sees the emotion of the mourners, it says Jesus wept. That's, that doesn't do it for me. You look into the Greek and the Hebrew on this. Some of the translation says He was so angry, so troubled in himself, so moved. Our Savior gets really angry when the sickness and death take out loved ones. 